<laughs> hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kindle Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Now, if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows, such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This week's episode of JSC Radio is dedicated to the memory of Alton Sterling. This is JSC Radio. This is very similar, I think, to what LeBron did. So I I can't rip uh, KD for this. Well, I'm not, listen, I'm, rip, I'm not ripping him for leaving, first of all. I'm ripping him for the team that he went to. You're going to the team that beat you when you were 48 minutes away on three separate occasions from beating them yourself. It's not that he's leaving Oklahoma City. It's the team that he's going to. And Chris Broussard, you've covered this league too long. I don't know how in God's name you can sit there and say <laughs> that it's a similar situation how to what LeBron not? experienced LeBron was the best in Cleveland. Player in the league. LeBron was being compared to Michael Jordan. And you know the team? criticism LeBron took, which is question, similar Chris. to what you're saying. Answer my question, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, go I'm ahead. asking a question. All right, what Tell is me it? who was LeBron James' teammates. Who are they? They were good enough to help him get yeah. 66 on, no, no, no. wins. I asked you a question. All right. It's a direct question, Mo Chris. He, he didn't have a Russell Mo Westbrook. He Mo didn't have a Russell Westbrook. Keep going. Hold on, Steve. Could they not have beaten Boston? It's not the same. And not only that, there were more things that were going on in Cleveland on a personal level, which you know just as well as anybody that influenced LeBron leaving Cleveland, too. What's KD's excuse? Are you kidding me? Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Don't listen to this. He's an idiot. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey, now, how the hell are you doing Hell is the perfect term to use considering how hot it is in Philadelphia. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and you're listening to episode 13 of JSC Radio. Yes, sir. How the hell is everybody doing today? Hope you're all hanging in, enjoying your post-4th of July pre Baseball All-Star break, it's about to be the single most dead time of the year, ladies and gentlemen, in sports. But the fun and games clearly have not stopped just because the NBA season ended two weeks ago. First and foremost, you want to get at me, holla at me on the Twitter machine. That's at J. Scott Smith. Also, you can get at me on Instagram, at J. Scott Smith. Hey, are you on Snapchat? Whoa, what a surprise. So am I. You want to know what that name is? Hot damn it, it's J. Scott Smith. You know where to find me. You know where to find me. So let's just get off into this. Coming up this week, we have a first. Another first here on JSC Radio. The first ever guest on the show. 
Miss Janae Darden, the daughter of Christopher Darden, one of the lead prosecutors in the O.J. Simpson trial of more than 20 years ago. During the NBA Finals, and those of you who followed me on Twitter, y'all already knew running concurrently during the NBA Finals was O.J. Made in America. The single best ESPN 30 for 30 thing ever, ever. Totally blew away the U. It's just the best ever by a mile. And as I'm watching this, I then realized that I've been friends with the daughter of Chris Darden for six years. Didn't know for five. But we'll get more on that story about how she's doing, what she's up to, and what life was like being the daughter of a guy who, let's be, let's just be honest, for a time was one of the most hated black men in America among the black community. But we'll get to that a little bit later on. First, you heard the start of the show. You heard it. You heard Chris Broussard and Stephen A. Smith going back and forth on ESPN on Monday after Kevin Durant dropped a slightly expected bomb on everybody as he is taking his talents to the Bay Area. So Kevin Durant has decided to sign with the Golden State Warriors, the 2015 NBA champion Golden State Warriors, the 2016 Western Conference champion Golden State Warriors, the Golden State Warriors who just gagged away a 3-1 lead in the NBA Finals to the ugh, Cleveland Cavaliers, those Golden State Warriors, the Golden State Warriors who won 73 regular season games. Those Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors who came from 3-1 down as Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Stephen Adams, Serge Ibaka, Billy Donovan, and the entire damn city of Oklahoma City gagged away a 3-1 lead in the conference finals. That Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant deciding as a free agent, mind you, to go join up with the boys in Oakland has gotten all the old geezers in the NBA, all the Twitter tough guys who they would have stayed if it was up to them, all their panties are in a bunch. And all I've heard for the last three days is, oh, Kevin Durant's a coward. He's soft. Uh, If you can't beat him, join him. Uh, He's so weak. Uh, Shut the hell up. 16 years ago in Detroit. Oh, here he goes talking about Detroit again. You're damn right I'm talking about Detroit again. Kiss my ass, you got a problem. A young man by the name of Grant Hill was up for free agency at the end of the 1999 NBA season. Grant Hill had spent the first six years of his NBA career with the Detroit Pistons. The Pistons, at the time when he got there, were by that point four years removed from an NBA title. They were in their one of the worst stretches in franchise history. They come off of 60-plus losses. They get him in the draft. They instantly improve to the point where they won 54 games, made the playoffs. But the thing is, at the time, and see for you youngsters, those of you who like to talk about the 90s so glowingly, even though most of you were like, you know, in second and third grade during the 1990s, the Eastern Conference in the mid-1990s, was what the Western Conference is now, loaded. The Pistons won 54 games. It was 1996, the year the Bulls won 72. Pistons won 54 games, and they were the five seed. They didn't even have home court at 54 wins. You win 54 games now, you might be a two or a three in the East. Like, for real, the Toronto Raptors won 56 this year, and they were the two seed behind Cleveland. Pistons would get to the playoffs. Grant Hill would put up 
damn near a triple-double for your whole season, but that's all he had, and the Pistons would invariably lose in five games, usually to the Atlanta Hawks or the Orlando Magic. That's just how it worked back then. Well, after the 99 season, Grant decided he, along with Tracy McGrady, who at the time was with the Toronto Raptors and was kind of a young up-and-coming superstar, were going to pair up, go down to Orlando, rekindle the magic that Shaq and Penny weren't able to finish off, and just take off and become this dynasty through the 2000s. And when Grant Hill left to go to Orlando because he signed as a free agent. Well, technically, he signed with the Pistons and then was traded. I'll get to that in a second. But when he left to go to Orlando, all you heard in Detroit was, he's a punk. He's soft. He couldn't hang. He was weak. We didn't want him anyway. He's a coward. He's a, you, you name it. Now, mind you, Grant Hill spent majority of his time in Detroit being called soft and a punk, and he wasn't tough enough, despite the fact that dude was tougher than a $2 steak and was really the only thing worth watching for the Pistons from about 1994 to 2003. So to have them basically run him out on a rail, and when he left, I was pissed. You have to understand, this was 1999. I was in my third year at Michigan State University by this point. I'm 20 years old. I don't know no better. I don't understand how much of a business this is. I'm just seeing that this disloyal POS just gave the finger to Detroit, and he's going to run down to Orlando? Really? With Tracy McGrady, there was an idea that a third guy was going to join them. The third man was supposed to be Tim Duncan, but Duncan said, the hell with this. Why the hell would I leave a great situation in San Antonio to go chase something in Orlando? Especially since, you know, they just won their first of what would eventually be five NBA championships. Why the hell would you leave? So he stayed. Grant goes down there. The sign and trade fired over to the Pistons, this scrappy little point guard named Chucky Atkins and this journeyman power forward named Ben Wallace. Things kind of turned out pretty well for Detroit in that aspect. So now, was I upset when Grant left? Yes. Did I burn his jersey? No, I actually had two Grant Hill jerseys. I had the classic Pistons, you know, the, the John that looks like the bad boy era Pistons. And I had, yes, I actually had a teal white home Grant Hill jersey. If you remember what those Piston jerseys looked like back in the day, oh boy, those were something special. So yes, while I didn't burn the jersey, I did throw it away. Pitched it right in the garbage. Didn't regret it, didn't look back. We now move to 2016. So Kevin Durant, in a very classy measure, he doesn't call up Jim Gray, he doesn't rent out a Boys and Girls Club, he doesn't make it some big damn production. He simply says in a short essay on the Players' Tribune that he's going to Golden State. He thanked everybody in Oklahoma City. He thanked the organization, and he left. And you'd have thought the man just went on there and just did what LeBron did, as you heard at the top of the show. I applaud Kevin Durant. And I'm going to use an example that was used on Deadspin to describe it. Kevin Durant left for a better job. To those of you who love to evoke the halcyon days of the 1980s, when, oh, you never would have seen Isaiah leave to go to the Lakers or Boston if he couldn't win. You wouldn't have seen Michael Jordan wouldn't run to Detroit. Well, yeah, of course not. Because back then, NBA free agency isn't what it is now. And a lot of these old geezers who played back in the 80s and 90s can jump bad and talk tough and be total hypocrites like they always are. 
But if the NBA's financial climate in 1991 or 1988 or 1994 was the way that it is now, I guarantee you Reggie Miller doesn't spend 18 years in Indianapolis. He didn't want to go to the Pacers in the first place. He's openly said it. Charles Barkley, he's got some nerve coming after Kevin Durant considering the way he strong-armed his way out of Philadelphia in 1993 to go to Phoenix and just to get beat by Jordan in the finals anyway. I think if any, if there's any one old-school guy that I believe would have hopped on a gravy train, it was Charles Barkley. I really believe that. If Barkley were able to get the max money and could go anywhere he wanted, do you really think he would have stayed in Phoenix? No. Do you really think he would have stayed in Philly? Hell no. As much as he used to ride the coattails of Michael Jordan, you know damn well there would have been a number 34 wearing a Bulls uniform, and I'm not talking about Charles Oakley. He'd have gone to Chicago. He would have. And for those of you who like to evoke the 1980s and, oh, there weren't any super teams and they weren't possing up with a bunch of Hall of Famers to go chase a ring, hey, newsflash geniuses, have you ever take a look at some of those rosters from those teams? How quickly we forget that every single NBA final from 1980 through to 1989, every single one of those championship series had either one or both of these teams, the Los Angeles Lakers or the Boston Celtics. Only twice during the 1980s did a Western Conference champion make the finals that was not named the Los Angeles Lakers, and both times it was the Houston Rockets. And both times they lost to, guess who? The Boston Celtics. Larry Bird. You people talk about, well, Bird wouldn't have just jumped on with a couple of Hall of Famers to chase a ring. He didn't have to. In the stretch of time that Bird played in Boston, he had five, count them, five teammates who ended up in the Hall of Fame. Let me say that again. Five. Y'all getting mad at Kevin Durant because he's teaming up with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. Larry Bird dropped into Boston and he already had Tiny Archibald. He already had Dave Cowens. He eventually would get Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale and friggin' Dennis Johnson. And of course, I always have to, whenever I say the name Dennis Johnson, I think of that damn steal at the end of the game in the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals. It still gives me flashbacks. Then let's head out west to LA. Magic Johnson drafted by the LA Lakers in 1979. You love it, I love it. We all loved it in East Lansing. That's how it worked. Magic had three Hall of Fame teammates. You know, the same amount that Durant had. The Magic wouldn't have left to go join up with Bird and Isaiah. He didn't need to. He had three Hall of Famers on his damn team. He had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jamal Wilkes, James Worthy. Those are three Hall of Famers, and we're not even factoring in guys like Byron Scott and Michael Thompson. Uh, stop. Stop. Bob McAdoo. Bob McAdoo's another one. So actually he had four. Oh, and for, for those of you fake tough guys in Detroit who love to act like the Pistons were this hard scrabble team, no, the bad boys were routinely putting at least three future Hall of Famers on the floor. Look at the 1989 Pistons, the first champion, the bad boy team, the first bad boy championship team. You have Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Dennis Rodman, all in the Hall of Fame. It was actually four for a while because Adrian Dantley played half the season on that damn team. So you had four Hall of Famers at one point out there for the Detroit Pistons, and you could at least make the case that the guy that Dantley got traded for, Mark Aguirre, could be a Hall of Famer. So so what are we saying here? Even the Philadelphia 76ers, the fourth team, and the only other team in the, in the 1980s to win an NBA title, had 
Julia Serving, and Moses Malone. So this ridiculous idea that all these super teams are brand new, get out of here. I mean, hell, during the 19... 1950s and 60s, it was the Boston Celtics winning every damn season. During the 1990s, yes, the Bulls were a really good team. And people forget in the 80s, yeah, you had four NBA champions and essentially three overall contending teams that were just there every single year. Lakers, Pistons, Celtics. The Bulls don't show up till later on in the decade. In the early half of the decade, it was the Sixers. Plus, in the West, even though the Lakers won the West every damn year, save for two, you had the Houston Rockets, who, by the way, were running around with Ralph Sampson and Hakeem, at different stretches with Ralph Sampson, Hakeem Olajuwon, and the aforementioned Moses Malone, who forced a trade to Philadelphia. You know, kind of like how Barkley forced a trade to Phoenix. For those of you who get on Kevin Durant, get off of him. Stephen A. Smith has an agenda because he's got a personal issue with Kevin Durant to begin with. Kevin Durant did what any of you lazy, sorry individuals would have done. If you're working at a job that pays you really well, you like the people you work with, you get pretty good benefits, but you don't really see a chance to go any further than where you are. Then all of a sudden, the bigger company down the street with a proven record of success, and yes, along the way, they outdid you suddenly says, hey man, we'd love to have you. And we're willing to pay you more money than you've ever seen and give you an opportunity to go further in your particular career than you've ever gone before. That's what Kevin Durant did. And for any of you who will sit here and say, I'd have stuck it out, I'd have been loyal. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna be loyal to a, to, I'm gonna be loyal to an organization that wasn't even loyal to the city where it first came from. And uh, you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna been, he should have been loyal, he should have stuck it out, okay. Here, here's what loyalty gets you. It gets James Harden traded after you finally make the NBA Finals. It gets James Harden shipped out to a conference rival, Houston. Loyalty gets you Serge Ibaka shipped off to Orlando. And let's just assume Durant decides he wants to re-sign for a boatload of money and stay in Oklahoma City. Guess who's getting shipped out next? Russell Westbrook. He's gone. And all of a sudden, Kevin Durant is standing around looking at Victor Oladipo and Kyle Singler and and the Pringles man himself, Steven Adams, and thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Kevin Durant didn't want to be Charles Barkley or Patrick Ewing or Reggie Miller or Allen Iverson. Kevin Durant wants to be Kobe Bryant and Steph Curry and LeBron James. By the way, so does Russell Westbrook. If you think he's finishing the season in Oklahoma City, you are smoking. Big ups to Kevin Durant. Hell, I wish the Pistons were good enough where he could have tried to show up in Detroit. Big ups to Kevin Durant. Get your paper, get your ring. And to you lazy, sorry, sad excuses for people, you fake tough guys who never made the team or never won anything in your life, saying, be loyal, if you, be loyal, be loyal. To what? Sports is a business, and you're only as loyal as your options. You ain't gonna sit here and tell me where, where you're able to, to make a move in your career. You're gonna, you'd rather stay in the same old place? That's why a lot of y'all are still in the same old place now. Coming up after this break, our first ever guest on JSC Radio, Miss Janae Darden. Strap up for this one, ladies and gentlemen. The interview with Miss Coco Fly is coming up next. This is JSC Radio. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, it's J. Scott Smith here, the host JSC Radio. And I want to personally take a second to thank you for taking out your time to listen to this show. But one other thing I would love for you to do while you're here is to take a little extra time and click on that Amazon link below the player. 
See, when you click on that Amazon link below the player, anything you purchase, and you don't have to purchase anything right now, but just bookmark it, save it to your favorites, and the next time you go on Amazon to purchase whatever it is, whether it's, I don't know, computer equipment, or music, or you could be trying to buy a watch, or buy a suitcase, or buy a new microphone in case you want to start podcasting. Whenever you want to do that, click on the Amazon link, go buy whatever you want, and whenever you purchase something on Amazon, a little bit of it gets chipped off to help JSC Radio keep rocking, keep rolling, and keep growing. So again, click on that little Amazon link right beneath the player. You'll see it. It's highlighted right beneath the player. Save it to your bookmarks. You ain't got to buy nothing right now, but the next time you want to jump on Amazon, Put your Amazon Prime to use. And also, it will definitely work if you want to download music and download Amazon Video too. A little bit of money gets shipped off to JSC Radio to help keep us moving. Really appreciate it. So show some love, get on Amazon, and click the link. This is JSC Radio. Your Honor, at this time, the people would ask that Mr. Simpson step forward and try on the the, uh, glove recovered at Bundy as well as the glove recovered at Rockingham. He can do that seated there. You could hear a pin drop. OJ was initially seated, putting on the first glove. I'm handing Mr. Simpson the uh, glove marking him. And right when it was clear it did not fit, OJ goes into naked gun mode. He stands up and shows his hand. And that's when he's now okay. The guy's an actor, for God's sakes. He's playing to 50 million people. All right, records reflect that Mr. Simpson has both gloves. What was he going to do? Make a good faith effort with plastic over his hands? All right, will you show that to the jury, Mr. Simpson, in the men? The whole thing was so wildly inconceived, so totally inappropriate, so doomed to failure. The idea that Chris Darden would do this. Mr. Darden, would you uh, wrap it up, please? I looked at him like, can't believe you did it. You let him play you. So this is JSC Radio, and as I've mentioned for the better part of the last week, I finally have a guest on this show. So it's not just me screaming into an echo chamber, and I've got the perfect person here. Now, first half of this show, I talked about how there were two things the last month that I have just been transfixed on. One was the NBA Finals, and running almost concurrently was the documentary OJ Made in America. Every time I would see... Chris Darden, I couldn't help but think to myself, how in the hell did I have his daughter as as a really good friend of mine for six years and not realize that she's his daughter? Well, I've got her here right now. So my first guest, the first ever guest on JSC Radio, she is more than just Chris Darden's daughter. She's an accomplished journalist, an author, an advocate for mental health, and just an overall wonderful person. Janae Darden, Welcome. To JSC Radio is my first guest. Oh, I'm so excited to be your first guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Coming to us all the way from the Bay. Yes, and you brought up the NBA Finals. Don't uh, talk about it. Well, look, I remember, I'm from Detroit, too, and nothing <laughs> nothing burns me more than seeing a team from that city win a championship. That just didn't. 
I talked about that last talked about that last week. It's like I was salty. I was the saltiest dog on the planet watching <laughs> watching the Cavaliers win. I hated that because actually I dig the, I dig the Warriors. It's like the Bay Area was always on my mind anyway. I love the Bay. I've mentioned that to you before, and just getting to talk to you here and really getting a chance to kind of get who you are out there because I know and we'll get to your we'll get to the work that your father has done and everything with OJ in a second but just just with you I want it's like when I look up and down at your resume here I'm actually like blown away by it because you've done work for NPR and you're you've done you've done stuff for Time Magazine and the LA Times and Ebony and and Marketplace and the Huffington Post and also done stuff for the Southern Poverty Law Center I guess the first question I have to ask you is what got you interested in being a journalist? I ask every journalist this question. What got you into wanting to join this crazy business of ours? I didn't, I didn't know it was crazy before, <laughs> before I wanted to do it. Um, I always wanted to be a journalist. I, it was nothing, I don't think anything in particular. I've always liked to write. My mother gave me a journal when I was about seven, and I've been keeping a journal and writing since. So that kind of maybe sparked my interest in writing. But and then, and then when I got a little older, my grandmother bought me a tape recorder. So I used to like try to record my family members and interview them. And I was the only child growing up, so I record my stuffed animals and interview them. So it was always kind of just something that I wanted to do. I just always was fascinated about interviewing people. And when, when I was twelve, I used to watch Sixty Minutes. I don't know how many how many twelve year olds watch Sixty Minutes. I'm morally, like, I'm morally safer. Huh? <laughs> I was like, I'm morally safer. I'm Mike yeah, Wallace. I'm Ed Bradley. Say, yeah, I used to say, and I'm Janae Dark. This and more. This and Andy <laughs> Rooney. <laughs> you also had a podcast, or you, I think, yeah, you also had a podcast. It says you're your former host of the Mental Health and Wellness Radio. Next, I guess, explain how that podcast ran and see that you won an award for it and everything else you yes you were a guest i, I was a guest uh, full disclosure i was a guest on the show as well i mean people haven't guessed i've got problems in my head to begin with but it's <laughs> and i, I <laughs> so what inspired what inspired the mental health and wellness radio uh, so I, I was hired to work at a nonprofit in oakland and um I heard the words that most people, that most journalists would love to hear. You can, we want you to start a show and do whatever you want. I was like, really? Those are, those are famous last words to certain people. (laughs) I said, I can do whatever I want. So, uh, and the the podcast was funded by our, our county, Alameda County. And so... Again, the nonprofit was a mental health advocacy nonprofit in Oakland. And so what I wanted to focus on, because I think mental health gets, people focus more on mental illness. And mental health is such a bad rap. You know, honestly, we usually talk about mental health is when there's a shooting or something like that. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, mental health is not about violence. So I wanted to interview people who are living with mental health conditions and they're managing their mental health. And I wanted real conversations about mental health. I didn't want anything sensational or to scare people. I wanted for people to learn about mental health, and I wanted for people who have mental health challenges or they have loved ones with mental health challenges to be inspired. So that's why I had all kind of people on, and I had I had journalists on. You know, I had all different type of professionals on who were dealing with mental health challenges. And how long did that show run? So I was at. 
was at that organization for about, how long was I there, four years? So we, you know, the, it was nonprofit, so I did have a huge budget where I could do a show every week. I would have loved to have done that. But over the course I was there, which was about four years, that's how long we had the podcast. And uh, wonderfully, I got my first journalism award doing, uh, doing that podcast. So my very first journalism award. It's probably the first of many. <laughs> well, to come, I hope. There you go. Hey, we, we keep it positive around here. It's, to come, yes. The first of many to come. Exactly. So, but I've gotten, other, I've gotten other honors since then. But yeah, I thought it was really neat. I said, wow, so that I created my own. And I actually beat out major, major, major um, radio stations in the Bay Area and won, and won an award. So I thought that was really neat. It, it sounds like it. I, I guess, well, you grew up in Oakland, right? What was it? What was it like growing up in Oakland? We're both we're both about the same age. I think we are the same age, actually. So, what was yeah. it like being an '80s baby growing up in the Bay? Yeah, growing up in Oakland in the '80s. So, I was the only child. Um, I'm, a, I'm my mother's only child, and so my father um, had more children once I turned 18. So, I was the only girl in the family for a long time, <laughs> and the only child. So, if you can imagine. Oh wow. <laughs> As an only child myself, I totally understand the struggle, by the way. I know, we have so much in common. It's like we kind of grew up the same. Our names start with J. We both have Sigma in our, in our uh, organizations. You but, know. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's, it, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, I was sometimes overprotected. My mother was a single mother, so she was really, really looking after me. So I don't hold it too much against her. But, um, yeah, growing up in, in the 80s was fun. I mean, it's not like today. You know, people deal with so you deal with so much today, so much pressure and 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 you know, violence and all that kind of stuff. Even though I did grow up in Oakland during you know the whole crack epidemic. So just growing up around some of the shootings and, and things like that. But other than that, you know, it was it was fun just to be with family and we would travel and and my family migrated from the south. So and they all lived within like a few miles of each other. So just going to barbecues and family parties and it was, it was just fun. And then I had friends on the street and we would run around the street and play. I mean, it was good. It had its challenges sometimes, but it was good. What were some of those challenges out there? And every every place has something different. Detroit had its thing with it had gang issues, and you had to. There were certain streets you didn't venture onto. It's like that even now. And there were certain right. streets you didn't venture onto. And oh yeah, still streets I don't venture onto. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's how that's how it was in Oakland. It was like which streets you didn't venture onto at a certain time of night. Because, uh, you know, bullets may be flying or fights. You know, those streets may be prone for that kind of activity. So those were some of the issues. And, again, I grew up in a, you know, my mother was a single parent, and that's not always easy. And um, and then I was bullied a lot when I was younger, and I, I write about that a lot because I was a darker-skinned black girl and nerdy. And I went to a predominantly black Catholic school. So um, I got bullied tremendously. And it actually affected my mental health, um, which is part also the reason why I did the podcast. So those are some of the, those are like some of my, my major struggles, which is self esteem and self worth. And my mother really, she really had to really watch me and really kind of undo some of the brainwashing society does about black girls and our images and that kind of stuff. I, I made a video on my um, Facebook page for my blog, CocoFly.com, and it was about. Um, those pictures that that came out about with little Kim and she looked so much so much lighter than what she used to be and I 
talked about how I had a lot of sympathy for her and compassion for her because if my mother had snatched me and really talked to me and put really positive images up of black women, I might have been doing something similar, you know, so to alter my appearance. Um, because I just had such low, so, such low self-esteem because I was being bullied. So that's what that's when I say the struggles, you know, were there in that respect. But other than that, you like he- I had support. So. You, and you hear of kids going through a lot of bullying these days. Yeah. It's, it, I guess now with the change in our culture here in the United States, people actually take kids being bullied very seriously. It was something I dealt with. I was always too skinny. When mm-hmm. you when you when you have a voice that sounds like this. And, and you're like, and you're, and you're 10, you said you're, it like that when you're a little boy? Yep, when, you're, when, you're, when you have a voice like this and you grow up in a city like Detroit or a city like Oakland, you're yeah. going to hear it and you're going to get it. you got to learn to either try to push it off to the side or you got to throw hands. And right. I got to a certain age where I got tired of throwing hands. So you had to kind of, you got to kind of work with that. But kids are really being pushed these days because of bullies. And now there's the, the extra dynamic of social media where, where they can bully you. You see it on Twitter all the time. People get way out of pocket knowing they don't have to face you. It's a, right. it's a different oh, element. absolutely. I know E-thugging. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, cyber thugs, the, the cyber thugs, the Twitter tough guys. And you, you, you see that, and it, and it does take a toll on kids' mental health. I, guess. I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine some of the things kids did to me and said to me, and they put that on Twitter or on Facebook. That would be detrimental. So I feel bad for kids. Or like you know, you see kids put naked pictures of other kids up on on the internet, and I feel bad that you know for kids going through that. I'm glad I didn't grow up in an era of social media. And when we think about that, and I guess there's no real great segue into this, but. How much of the Thirty for Thirty documentary on OJ did you have you seen? I've only seen episode one, um, so I'm behind. <laughs> I need to see that. I do need to see the rest. But from what I've seen, it's it's amazing. Just the first episode is just amazing. Uh, but w- there was a part in that talked about something you wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mean, well, the well, the I whole. Read some of it, so it's, <laughs> you it's, like to bring it up. It's well. Here, oh, the thing about it is, and and I guess we'll kind of start this on different levels. Is first off, I guess, what was your relationship like as a kid before all this with your father? So my father, so my father left for L.A. He grew up in the Bay Area. He grew up in Richmond, um, California, which is not far from Oakland and not far from San Francisco either. It's interesting with that documentary because. Um, O.J. Simpson, my father and I, in a way, kind of, I don't want to say cross paths because there's age differences, but we kind of all were in similar settings. I went to USC. O.J. went to USC. My father got accepted. My father went to San Jose State. O.J. got accepted to San Jose State. We all lived in the Bay Area. So just be watching the first episode, I understood a lot what was going on. But back to my father, he left when I was one, about one, maybe a little younger than that. And he took a job in L.A., so our relationship, it was a long-distance relationship in the sense that I saw him probably maybe a few times a year. We did communicate a lot, um, like over the phone and through letters, and he would come and visit. Um, but I didn't grow up with him in the house, and we still had a good relationship. You know, I think the fact that he lived long-distance, you know, we made it work. Him and my mother were always in contact with each other. As you got, and so obviously, as you got older, you know, you obviously had a relationship with your dad. So as we progress along here, 
he becomes his lawyer. He well, he is his lawyer down in Los Angeles, and he ends up a part of the trial. Right. And again, we're it's interesting when you when I look at it just from my perspective. I saw the entire documentary, and it was like it was just taking me back. It was yeah. It was just rewinding everything back to the early '90s, and I'm that I'm I'm coming of age as a teenager in Detroit, a city that's got its own issues, and you're watching this from afar, not understanding that there's a real human toll of this. So when it comes up that your dad is part of the prosecution team for OJ and people start to figure out who you are, you mentioned you dealt with bullying before and dealt with issues before. How was it for you dealing with that during the mid nineties where now your dad is a household name and people start to peg who you are? It was, it was interesting. (laughs) It was challenging and it could have been worse. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, I went to a predominantly black and Latino high school. Go Mustang, St. Elizabeth High School in Oakland. And people started putting one and one together. You know, because they're like, Dad's from, he's from Richmond, last name Darden. They both wear glasses. You know, we both got full lips. They're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Are you related to that bald-headed dude? So, <laughs> so that's what you're like, you related to that bald-headed black dude? So, you know, people were starting to put one and one together, and we had to, my parents had to alert the school what was going on because my father started receiving death threats. So at first, you know, I mean, it was just, this whole Bronco chase, all that was crazy, right? Yeah. And so then my, my actually my dad was supposed to uh, prosecute Al Cowling, and then they dropped that, and so then he got moved to... Um, OJ trial. I don't. I can't remember the the gentleman's name, but he was he was a co-prosecutor, Marsha Clark. And if you saw the 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 dramatization, the FX show, The People versus OJ, he had an anxiety attack, and so he couldn't do it. And so they he asked my father to to replace him. So that's how my father um, got involved. Um, and, um, well, even before that, he was doing. My dad was working on the case, but more working behind the scenes. And then they pulled him to the front. Because the other guy had a had an um, anxiety attack, but you know we were excited for him. We thought this would be we were like, oh, this is going to be great. This would be good for your you know for your career. And and if my, you know if my father felt OJ Simpson was guilty, then you know that's why he also was on the case too. But we had no idea it would like <laughs> turn into this big snowball sensational sensationalized like this craziness. And and luckily, a lot of the kids at the school I went to, they said, you know, we, you know, we we're signed with OJ, but you know, we like you. We always thought you were cool, so we're gonna support you too. So luckily, I didn't have too much um, bullying or anything. I got a few dirty looks, a, a few, a few you know, nasty comments. But other than that, it could have been worse. People were very, very supportive. And it's funny because since the, since the documentary stuff has come out, I've had, like, someone apologize to me for giving me dirty looks and kind of saying, you know, not being very nice to me and that kind of stuff. They had no idea what we were experiencing. But, I mean, it was hard, you know, because my father got ripped <laughs> in the media at times. And, and black community. And, and I lived in a black community. You know, I lived in the black community, and both of my parents always encouraged me to be proud of my blackness. And it's funny because people are surprised when I say that. Both of them, my father included, 
you know, very much encouraged me to be proud of my blackness and would want me and would buy me books by black authors and would take me to black bookstores and my father would introduce me to black professionals, you know, or black journalists just so he so I can see myself doing the same thing. Um, so it was very it was very hard to hear somebody come to me and say, Your father, Uncle Tom, your father a, a traitor to the race. So that was very, very hard. And then I just kinda I was kinda like the girl in the um I forgot the name of that cartoon. The what's the name of the Disney cartoon when they're all superheroes? Oh, the uh, the Incredibles. The Incredibles. Yeah, I was like the teenage girl. I wanted to disappear. <laughs> like I just wanted to be invisible because it, it just became, you know, it just became very hyper visible. Sometimes I would tell people my name. I wouldn't tell them my last name because I knew they would make the connection, especially during the trial. I would lie. People asked. I would say, Oh no, I'm not related to him. That was the I, that was the funny thing is that when I met you because of in full disclosure I met you six years ago. Did you ask me? I probably lied to you too. I, you know what? I don't think I even thought to ask <laughs> because I guess I've seen people who've had. I went to high school with a with a young lady whose last name was Darden, and clearly I'm like, well, she ain't related to him. So I don't think those sort of things. And and it was, I think you put up like either a Facebook post or a tweet where you mentioned. I think you did this thing in the L.A. Times. And my jaw damn near hits the floor. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> and I looked at, I, and I see that, and then I took one good look at you. Then I saw one look, took a look at your dad. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me with and this. You like glasses, Every, lips. everything, <laughs> everything. I was stunned, stunned. And, and you brought up, a, you brought up another point there, where you said people were giving your your dad grief about about prosecuting OJ where it seemed as if there was this notion that since he's black he can't do his job because his job was to be a lawyer and to be a prosecutor and I guess that that might lead to something here where doesn't it seem weird I guess in our community that at times we feel like we all have to operate in this monolith like we can't always think for ourselves and that's what leads to some of the Uncle Tom stuff and the you're a traitor even though you're doing your job and you're doing what you're supposed to do type of thing it's like we're not a monolith you know and I agree and like we do you know we do have diversity of opinion and um and your dad's a cop right yeah my dad was my dad was a police officer he's a police officer in Detroit for 30 almost about 33 years see that's why I said we have similar <laughs> see, my your, your dad's monolith. a lawyer mine was in law enforcement it's yeah. <laughs> it's how uh, but but you know but both our dad's roles you know the black community looks at it differently and I understand I told you know and I and I you know, like I wrote in the LA Times piece, I under—I understood, you know, I understood, you know, Rodney King and, and all that kind of stuff and, and um, the sister who was shot uh, by the Korean merchant over orange juice. I, 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 I understand. I grew up in Oakland. So police brutality and all that kind of stuff, I understood. I understood people were angry. Um, so, but, you know, we still need cops and we still need good cops, you know? And it's funny because I did a piece on Ebony and I asked my father, do we need black prosecutors? And he said, yes, because he said, you need people, um, you know, you need people that understand culture and maybe a, a prosecutor who understands black culture that and isn't racist. They're not going to like throw the book at a kid for stealing, you know, some tennis shoes. And not try and lock them up for years. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So he was saying, like, you you need those kind of people in the system, too. And, you know, I love black folks, but some of us do commit crimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so, and then and at the same time, the justice system is racially unfair. 
to, to many of us. So I understand. So I'm kind of you know looking at it from both sides, and and you know and like you know it's funny because I talked to my father about this, and he was like he put he's put away you know gangbangers and all kind of stuff, and um, that were black, and no nobody came protesting at those cases when he did that. I mean you know he's kind of like why you know be outraged when there's a celebrity involved too as well. So, and I had this one brother, he messaged me on Facebook because my father prosecuted um, somebody who killed his friend. Somebody, can you imagine this? Think about this. No one will we know today. Somebody killed his friend over a portable CD player. Which, if you change that to 2016, you get shot over an iPhone. Right. Somebody killed him for, right, to the equivalent of an iPhone. And it's just sad because I'm like, nobody even uses those anymore. Yeah, and this guy, he, and he was black, and he was like, I just, you know, he said, I know people gave your father a hard time, but somebody killed my friend, and he put him away. So, I mean, those are just things to, to, to think about. But like I said, I understand why black people are, are upset, and I understand why they sided with OJ. I understand. How's your dad doing? He's good. He's a defense attorney now. People say he joined the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> He switched sides. <laughs> he, 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 uh, but a lot of attorneys do that. They go from prosecution to fit, you know. So that's not that's not uncommon. <laughs> I know he 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 went through a lot. Mm-hmm. He went through a lot, and that, and this is another. And I know you 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 put up with a lot of crap as a teenager because by the time this happened, we were both 16, 15, 16 years old when this mm-hmm. thing ended. You're dealing with these media members and the paparazzi and the and the gossip rags and all that calling you and bringing all these all these rumors and and all this right. and, and, and all this 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 bs to your to you how are right. how are you able to i guess handle that what what is that like when you're getting which is still the mid 90s so it's not like you're getting text messages but you're getting like phone calls or people showing up at your house how do you how did you cope with that how did your family cope with that people it's like you just just imagine you're a regular person nobody knows who you are nobody knows anybody related to you and all of a sudden <laughs> you get paparazzi and you don't live in LA you don't live in Hollywood you don't live in New York City you know you just live in like a regular town and all of a sudden people are coming to your door people I had my own phone and people were calling somebody called and they're like we want to know about you want to tell us something about your daddy so I'm like hanging up on people <laughs> I had an aunt <laughs> I was like what I had an aunt she uh by marriage, she she sold my winter ball picture to a tabloid. So, you know, and I, I, I joked because the tabloids, I think the type, like something in the tabloids said, oh, you know, Janae Darden is like always chasing off boys. And I was mad because it wasn't true. And I was, like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I wish, you know. <laughs> so I was like, you put, you know, man, up you saw my picture. And then like, you know. <laughs> not even in LA you're in Oakland I was like, I'm not in LA and I was like I ain't kill nobody you know you know when you're a kid <laughs> <laughs> I was like I don't even live in LA 
they were getting death threats. And and so, um, and then my dad felt guilty because that was going on and my uncle was dying of AIDS and the paparazzi was harassing him. And I remember somebody called my grandparents and like, how do you feel about your son dying of AIDS? You know, and it's like, how the hell do you think we feel? You know? Right. I mean, it was just a lot of this insensitivity, but I didn't realize part of this was because I learned years later from people today that people watched the trial like it was a show and so they saw the people there the key figures as characters and not really as real people so and I know my father I've heard people say oh he looks so defeated and worn out and I'm thinking like well yeah because he wasn't just going coming home and going to the trial and that was it and they, they shut down the set you know that was an actual real courtroom and he had things going on he's in LA he feels bad because his because paparazzi is hounding his brother who is dying of AIDS and hounding our grandparents and hounding me and then I may not be able to go out as much. I mean, so he's feeling some guilt too about that. You know, that he kind of, you know, his his overnight celebrity kind of affected us. So um, all of that, you know, it was hard. It was, you know, it was hard. It was hard to see him go through what he went through. You, you don't seem to harbor any ill will toward people after all this though. That's what I'm, I'm gathering. You you have a really positive outlook, and now we're more than 20 years out from this thing. You, mm-hmm. you seem to be a lot more at ease with some of this now as the years have gone on and the things that have happened with OJ and everything else. You you don't I – don't, I don't detect that you're harboring a lot of ill will toward anybody after this. Well, I think – well, I mean – Or I could be totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I understand because I think if I didn't understand I would be angry 
what's next for you after all the things you've done? What is what is next on your plate? So much, so much not related to OJ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Because it's just interesting how it's just, yeah. It's just interesting how life is interesting. You never know what's gonna happen or what's gonna affect you or, or change things. But and sometimes things happen that change for the better. It's not always, it's not always dramatic and, and and crazy. But <laughs> um, so I have a lot. I have a lot. I'm working on a book proposal um, that I'm finishing up for. So for a long time, um, I've been researching Black erotic literature. That is something I'm very passionate about. And um, so. Um, you want to hear the story? Of course. Sure. <laughs> of course. We can talk about OJ, trial, and sex. Two interesting topics for your listeners. <laughs> so, when I was uh, a junior, I think, yeah, I was a junior, junior um, at UC San Diego. I think going into my senior year. And I was doing, I was in a research program, kind of like McNair, but not quite. And so I had to find a topic. I didn't know what I wanted to do research on. And so I was. I went to school. You San Diego is in La Jolla. And La Jolla is one of the wealthiest cities in the country. So, which means like there's like hardly no black people there. And so I was at a bookstore that was going out of business, Crown's Bookstore. And there was a bin of like discounted books. And so I'm going through the bin, and I pick up a book, and I see this black woman. She's like partially nude, with, like her arms are crossed over her breasts, and it's called Brown Sugar collection erotic literature something like that and I was like oh it's probably like some harlequin thing and it was only like four bucks so I was like okay I can do four bucks on the student budget so I buy the book I open the book and it's like flames shooting off the pages and I had no idea black people wrote erotica I had no idea I mean you know Prince wrote some sex and stuff you know but I didn't know people like black people write a lot erotic literature and so I started studying this and this was back in 2000 when I started doing research and I found more and more and more and more so I've been writing about erotic literature and sex I write a lot about sex too um, sex and race for a while so I'm shopping it around to get a book deal so that's that's the big thing that's that's next step for me and this is something I've been passionate about for years so I've because usually in school when you learn about black sexuality you learn about the, the, the horrific things that we went through right like how black people were treated during slavery and you know and and when you and just you know HIV rates are high with black people and all that kind of stuff and so it, not that and that's very important but I'm always like okay what about pleasure where's you know let's talk about let's talk about pleasure and 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 and, and those type of sexual experiences with with, with black culture and within uh, with African Americans so so that's what I like writing about and you, as we're about to wrap this up, as we've been we've been at this for more than 30 minutes here, how can people reach you? I know you have your blog and you have your website. I guess get your get your social media info out there. How can people reach you? And obviously, come in peace when you do. But how can people come and actually reach you and talk to you? <laughs> so, people, and I also do public speaking too. Um, people can reach me. So, of course, they can go on CocoFly.com. That's O-C-O-A fly.com they can email me at cocoflyblog at gmail.com and on Twitter Facebook and Instagram I am at cocofly one more time for the people what's the name of that website so it's cocofly c-o-c-o-a fly.com and I write about like race and sexuality and women's issues 
and men are always welcome, and they do come on there. <laughs> and also, too, for anybody, if they if they watch the People versus O.J. Simpson, I did a whole series on that as well. So I kind of wrote about what was accurate, what was not quite as accurate um, on the show. So I'm sure, you know, for people that haven't watched the show yet, if they, or if they have questions, I break it down by each episode. So each episode has a post. I would almost suggest you try to do that for O.J. Made in America, too. Just, you know, I know, and I was, and then I, I just I got bogged down with other stuff, and I still might do that. I still might write. I probably won't do each episode, but I'm gonna write something about it. Janae, I appreciate you being my first guest on this show and taking yes. taking the time to talk to me. This is this has been just wonderful. Yes, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> I I hey, I couldn't do it without you. Couldn't do it without the people who listen. I I thank you for this. It's Janae. Darden, she's more than just Chris's daughter. She's a dynamic individual, really good friend of mine, and an unbelievably talented young woman. And I thank you for coming on JSC Radio. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Follow Janae on Twitter, at CocoFly. That's Coco, like Coco Puff, C-O-C-O-A, Fly, on Twitter. Get at her. Be sure to check out CocoFly.com and you can see all the work she's done. She's a dynamic individual, not just in terms of professionalism, but just she's a hell of a great person. And I am absolutely proud to call her a friend of mine. Thank y'all once again for listening. This supersized episode of JSC Radio. We'll be back with episode 14 next week. Take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. Black Lives Matter. We're out of here. I'll you next Thanks week. Thanks for coming out. God bless you. Good night. <laughs> Check it out. This is JSC Radio.